Welcome to All Shall Be Well, a conversation hosted by InterVarsity's Women in the Academy and Professions, giving voice to women seeking to live fully into their God-given callings and be a redeeming influence, whether in the university or beyond. This is Caroline Trissick, and on this episode of All Shall Be Well, Conversations with Women in the Academy and Beyond, our guest is Jamie Ong. Jamie is an Environmental Protection Project Manager at the New York City Department of Parks and Recreation, with nearly 20 years of experience in wetland and riparian restoration, watershed planning, and green infrastructure design. Jamie lives in Flushing, Queens with her husband and two children, where she enjoys exploring good food and public parks. On this episode, my colleague with Women in the Academy and Professions, Jasmine Obey-Sekerer, joins me in interviewing Jamie as we chat about Jamie's integration of faith and vocation, as well as her experience as a New Yorker during the pandemic. Throughout the interview, you may hear some signs of life as the three of us are all working from home, as many of you are as well, with our families bustling in the background. I hope you'll appreciate this conversation as Jamie offers her story of having had and recovered from the coronavirus and how she is now working toward helping her community flourish in the midst of these challenging times. For this episode of All Shall Be Well, I'm grateful to have my colleague Jasmine Obesekerer join me today as a co-host as we chat with a friend of Jasmine's, Jamie Ong. Jasmine, would you start us off by introducing Jamie and sharing a little bit about how you know one another? Well, Jamie and I were in grad school at Syracuse University at the same time, and this was about 15 years ago. Uh, She and her husband and my husband and I were the leaders of the InterVarsity Graduate Christian Fellowship at that time. So I wonder whether I can ask Jamie the first question. Jamie, with most of our audience being women in academia, can you begin by sharing briefly about your educational background? and how that has shaped who you are today. Uh, Sure, thanks Jasmine and thanks Caroline. It's such a a joy to be with you today. In terms of my educational background, I studied natural resources, which is like environmental science. I did my undergrad at Cornell University. And then after a couple of years, went on to the SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry in Syracuse, which is where I met Jasmine and her husband. And there I did a Master of Professional Studies in Environmental Science, as well as a joint degree Master of International Relations at the Maxwell School at Syracuse University. Great. Thank you so much for sharing about your journey. And then can you also share a little bit about your faith background and how that has shaped you as well? So I became a Christian probably fairly young. I think I had a pretty unique background in that my family, I don't come from a Christian family, but my aunt brought my sister and I to church when we were very young. So we grew up in the church, but our parents are still not believers. And I think because of that, I really had to be mindful and intentional about choosing, you know, once I got older, choosing to go to church and choosing my faith. And I think, you know, in in some ways it's a little bit discouraging and hard to grow up with non-Christian parents, but I think at the same time, it's been a real sanctifying process for me. We continue to pray for them. And then also just, it's given me a chance to really be reflective and knowing who I am and why I believe what I do 
And, you know, of course, all of that goes into how I make my decisions, my daily life, my parenting. I have two Mm -hmm. kids. It goes into my work and just recognizing that every day is a gift. So question two, maybe you said this earlier when you were talking about your educational background. Geographically, I know you're in New York City now. Did you grow up in New York City as well? I did. Yeah, I was born in New York. We lived in Brooklyn when I was first born, then moved to uh, Chelsea, Manhattan in the 80s when it was kind of a scary place to live. Like there were mostly nightclubs. We didn't go out at night after dark, essentially. Mm-hmm. And so it's been really interesting to see that neighborhood and the, the entire city grow over the last, uh, what, 30, 40 years almost now. (laughs) And, you know, first the Barnes and Noble came in and then all the luxury condos and franchise restaurants came in and uh, the city continues to change for sure. And, you know, when I was in school, I didn't go to school in New York City. I worked in California for a couple of years and then came back to New York City, ultimately got married and had kids and had a family in New York City. So it's definitely part of my DNA, I would say. Mm. So Jamie, can you tell us about your current vocation and how your faith informs your work? Sure. I am a ecologist and scientist at the New York City Department of Parks and Recreation. And so a lot of people, when they hear Parks and Recreation, immediately think (laughs) about the uh, Amy Poehler show, which is excellent. And I have been watching more of that during this time because we all need a little bit of a break. And, (laughs) you know, there are certainly similarities that I can share, I guess, about in another forum. But in any case... Oh, you could always share them now. (laughs) I'd find it interesting, but I'm a big fan of Parks and Rec. Nice. People are always surprised when I hear... I actually work in a division of the Parks Department called the Natural Resources Group. And my focus is on wetlands restoration. So I work to study and monitor and protect, conserve, and build more wetlands all throughout the city. That includes salt marshes, freshwater wetlands, rivers, and streams. And so, you know, generally people's first reaction is, I didn't even know those things existed, those habitats existed in New York City. And what I always respond back to them is that there's actually 20,000 acres of natural areas in New York City. And I've shared with you a map here that in in the light green has all the parkland. So all the city parks, you know, so when you think of Central Park, most of Central Park is, you know, you've got the skating rink and the bike paths and the lawns, and those are all important recreational areas. But then you also have the natural areas, which are in dark green. So there's very specific natural areas in Central Park, if you're looking at Manhattan, the center of Manhattan, that rectangular grid. And that's, you know, where you get your forests and your native animals and all kinds of beautiful plants and interactions that people need, I think, in urban areas, especially in urban areas where you don't have Mm -hmm. access to them as readily as in other places. And I think more specifically, you'd have to say that about 11%, almost 12% of New York City, all of New York City is actually natural area. So that's much larger than people would expect. And that covers all of the boroughs of New York City. So Staten Island, the Bronx, Queens, Brooklyn, and Manhattan. 
And, you know, just as an example, I'm showing some slides now of different habitats that you might find. So we've got high marsh habitat at Arlington Marsh in Staten Island. And I'm going to describe the photo here. You know, you, you have these rolling grasses and in the background, blue sky, as well as a waterway and some buildings as well. And so having that contrast of landscape, beautiful wild landscape in the midst of a built environment, I think is pretty special. And so we've got a number of different habitats. We have gross coastal grassland, which is a little bit more kind of rugged in the grasses that you find. And just cycling through these, I think the overall theme is that there's beauty and chaos and color and all of the things that make the city a city in grass and wood and leaves and blue sky and sand and trees. I just love that I can take the subway and emerge into an environment where I can hear birds sing and, and in the spring now, you know, this is May. So this is like prime season for amphibians like frogs and salamanders to be calling. And also it's, you know, prime migratory bird season. So we're, we're getting birds from all over the world that come through New York City, which is, I guess, an analogy for its people as well. Thank you so much for sharing those images with us. It's surprising actually to me to see all the green and all the different colors. We will have a link in the show notes if anyone wants to pop in there and see the images that Jamie put together for us of the nature in the midst of New York City. So thanks so much for sharing those. You're welcome. Yeah. And Jamie, would you also share a little bit about how your faith informs your work? Sure. I think the fact that a lot of what I do is restoration <laughs> is a very direct correlation to my faith. You know, a big part of what we do in urban areas in general, and especially in New York City, is we try to build more wetlands or more natural areas in general. So we take areas that are degraded and, you know, they've been impacted through, maybe they've been paved over, maybe they've been dumped on, I mean, there's garbage, there's contamination in terms of like soil pollutants, the chemicals that are in the soil that we need to remove because it's not only unsafe for plants, but it's unsafe for people who we want to invite into the park. And so this idea of restoration, restoring a habitat and taking an area that's been destroyed and redeeming it and restoring it and making it into, you know, pulling out all of that rubble, pulling out all that contaminated soil, bringing in clean sand and planting it with new plants, nurturing and cultivating that over the course of a couple seasons, I think is a real reflection of my faith, of Christianity in general, of what Jesus has done through his sacrifice in restoring our earth. So that's a real direct correlation for me. I experience that and try to consider that through lots of my interactions with my work. And I think just faith in general and my Christian space, faith specifically, it's so informative through my interactions with other people, with my coworkers in particular. It drives me to be more patient and be more loving and to see people not 
<laughs> as I'm inclined to, you know, often I'm inclined mm-hmm. to see them as, at best, see them as inconveniences, at worst, to see them as, as, <laughs> as all kinds of things um, that are worse than that. And, you know, I think God calls us to see them in his image and to be able to, to work with people in that context. And so that I try to remember that in my interactions. I think also now that I've been in this industry for 20 years or a little bit less, you know, recognizing that I'm, I've got so much knowledge that I've built on from other people, from my mentors, from the people who hired me and gave me opportunities and looking to see if I can provide that to other people. And I think finally, just being comfortable with failure. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I think it's really hard for academics, all of us, to be okay with failing. And I think it took me a long time to get there. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It took a lot of failing, I suppose, to get there. And I think, you know, recognizing that, that our performance and our worth doesn't lie in our resume or in our, you know, CV. It lies in our identity in Christ and remembering that and recognizing that daily. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing about that. On the other hand, then, are there particular ways that your work has influenced or expanded your faith? Certainly. I think, you know, one of the projects that I hadn't talked about is we do a lot of watershed planning in particular in my role, or I I do a lot of that. And the concept of watershed planning is that you take a waterway, you know, specifically I've been working on the Harlem River, which is a waterway between the Bronx and Manhattan. And we think about not only the river, but everything that flows into the river. So we think about the parks that are there, the people who live in the Bronx, how many trees are in that area, the pipes that flow into the river and what what those pipes bring, and all of the different communities and community organizations that might be working for its peace and restoration. And so I think in terms of influencing or expanding my faith, it's been an opportunity for me to consider how faith organizations and churches can be involved in this process. You know, we do a lot of volunteer work and stewardship work and trying to kind of reach out to faith networks in particular. And especially in working in the Bronx, I think this concept of, you know, racial reconciliation and connection And equity also, you know, making sure that we are able to take the concepts that we're developing, the plans that we're developing, and making sure that, you know, everyone who uses these areas or benefits in these areas or actually receives impacts from poor management of these areas would be represented in our planning process, making sure that all the voices are at the table, even the the voices that aren't able to get to the table, essentially. And, you know, I have to admit, I don't think we're that good at it. So it's still Mm -hmm. a learning process. Yeah. So I'm hearing there's, you know, the part of your work where you're really focused on the actual environment. And then there's also the people that it affects and making sure that there's equity in how people are able to experience where they live. Right. So Jamie, as a New Yorker, what has your experience been of COVID-19? It's been tragic and heartbreaking and silent, I think. 
all of those things. I mean, as I was reflecting on this question, I was just thinking about New York normally being such an active and bustling city. And all of a sudden we have empty streets and we have this eerie silence that's just too often especially in the very beginning of this pandemic, you know, too often punctuated with sirens. And I don't think anyone in New York City has been untouched by the virus at this point. People are sick, people are in the hospitals, people are dying. It's really, people are lonely, people are hungry, people are worried about their next paycheck, if it's even coming and so it's it's a dark time. I, I mean, I think for me specifically, I've been sick from the virus. I've had to be isolated from my family. And thankfully, you know, we've got people around us who sent us chicken soup. And, you know, we had a nurse friend who told us to go to urgent care when I think it was a critical point in my illness. And I think being really thankful for that community, thankful for people's prayers. We had a lot of people praying for us. And also I think trying to figure out, you know, like everyone else, like church in our living room (laughs) and how we as a church can continue to protect our, or continue to meet with and to support our families and congregants when we can't physically see them and also how we as a church can do the same for our community. I mean, we've got people who are volunteering with local community organizations to provide food to seniors. We volunteer monthly or we volunteered, we did monthly at a a nursing home in our neighborhood in Flushing, Queens. We're based in Flushing. Go Flushing. And, you know, we volunteered at that nursing home monthly for 20 years almost. And we've got congregants who have grown up with those grandmas and grandpas in the nursing home. And we were just so devastated to hear of the, the tragic loss and lack of, of support and poor conditions in that nursing home. And we're able to provide masks and electronics, iPads, so that people, family members could communicate with their loved ones in the home. We've been trying to advocate for them through our elected officials. And so there's a lot of ways for us to take this brokenness and seek the peace of the city for it, seek justice and recognize where that justice ultimately comes from. Yeah, thank you, Jamie, for giving a snapshot of how it feels like to live in New York at this time. And I just want to ask you a couple more questions about specific things that you might have experienced. And one part is isolation while being a mom that that you experienced being a patient with COVID-19. And the other part is being in a healthcare facility, but was the experience like in a downstairs healthcare facility? What did you observe of the atmosphere? Yeah. Well, I can certainly talk about both, you know, our kids are both doing remote school right now. And, you know, even at first, there's that tension of whether or not we should take our kids out of school. And when the remote school was decided, when that decision came through, you know, how long it would be and and all that uncertainty combined with the uncertainty of, of work and whether or not you know, I still had to take the subway to the office. You know, there there was a time before my workplace figured out work from home capabilities. And, you know, I'm super thankful for that. I think, yeah, there there is a lot of tension. There is a lot to get used to. <laughs> 
I think it certainly tries my patience and stretches me in a whole new way, especially in our marriage, you know, being able to to work and parent and mm-hmm. teach and feed all in the, the confines of a New York City apartment has been mm-hmm. challenging. And at the same time, it's been fortifying in some ways, you know, we, we fight a lot, but I think we also have really special times of connection. And I'm so thankful for that. I'm also just recognizing the fact that we are so, so fortunate. You know, we've got devices for the kids to do school on. We've got a steady salary. We've got internet connection that we can rely on. We're able to get our food in different ways and just really try hard not to take those things for granted. So when you were sick with the virus, did you have to isolate or quarantine from your family, from your kids and your husband as well? Yeah, I did. And actually, that's thank you, Caroline. That gives me a chance to give my husband some real recognition too for all of his efforts. I mean, I was isolated for three weeks. I was in oh, wow. my bedroom and we have a, a single bathroom. So I have to say our bathroom has never, ever been so clean. <laughs> Because, you know, I'd have to like wipe it down every time I was in there. And yeah, it was three weeks of isolation. My my husband is amazing. And I think, you know, as women in all kinds of professional fields, it's so important to have people that recognize our work and have partners that recognize our work and are able to give us space to do that. And I guess as I'm sharing now and thinking about that, like just recognizing that it's also a gift and it's also something to fight for if you don't have it Mm -hmm. and to voice, to ask for if you don't have it. And yes, you know, I was isolated. It was three weeks in isolation. Part of that time I was so sick. I just did not care. <laughs> you know, but as I was recovering, there is that sense of, you know, loneliness and missing people, missing my family. And I think also just boredom. <laughs> and all of those things, you know, I'm thankful for my kids. I, they slipped notes to me under the door. I had mm. meals brought to me on a tray, which is a real perk being a mom. And (laughs) yeah, I mean, I think certainly I have to be really thankful for my kids. I think they stepped up a bunch during that time. My husband taught my sons how to make coffee, which uh, is a service I continue to rely on even now. (laughs) So yeah, definitely try to make the most of things. Yeah, Jamie, I wonder, since you actually had to go into urgent care and experienced like the firsthand medical services, what did you glimpse of what, you know, healthcare providers, what were you seeing? Yeah, no, that's a good question. Thanks for reminding me of that, because I think that was also a very vivid experience from this time. You know, I think as I was sick, there's this tension of, you know, do we want to go to a healthcare facility? You know, I didn't even know if, for sure if I had COVID. And then part of it's like, do we want to go and expose other people or and potentially expose ourselves? The reason why I was isolating and we were so strict about our isolation was that, you know, my husband has underlying conditions that we wanted to make sure that he wasn't exposed. 
So, you know, it was good to have friends who are medical professionals who could provide us with advice. And so I did go to an urgent care center locally. And by that point, it was the first time I had been outside for about a week, maybe more. So that was a strange experience in itself. Um, Actually getting to the urgent care, it was really crowded at that time. I think I went at the end of March. It was March 31st, I remember. And this was in Queens, Fresh Meadows, Queens. And it was more crowded than I'd ever seen it. You know, usually we've got two or three people in that waiting room whenever I go. And this time I'd say there were maybe 30 people in the waiting room. And there was certainly a sense of tension and and unease. Anxiety, I suppose, is the best word. And there was a lot of anxiety. There was a lot of just heightened emotions, people wearing makeshift face coverings, uh, scarves, as well as masks, uh, waiting. I waited probably about two hours. And and actually, in the midst of all of that, the staff were just so soothing and, and professional and, and caring. I think I was very thankful for them, thankful for all of our healthcare heroes in putting themselves at risk so that other people can be healthy. Another COVID-related question, I guess, to you about your work. Do you see that whether in any way the COVID-19 has impacted how you envision and engage in your work, particularly in the pandemic season, and even whether that's been giving you ideas for the future? Yeah, certainly it's impacted our work. I mean, I work for a city agency and the Parks Department hasn't suffered the losses in life that other city agencies have, like the Metropolitan Transit Authority that runs the subways and mass transit for the city, our police department, our fire department. And so there's definitely protections for our essential workers that has impacted the way we operate. You know, all of our work, as much of our work as possible is moved online, moved to remote platforms. And so in some ways, being able to take advantage of that has been really eye-opening. You know, there's a lot of resources that we now have available to us that we didn't previously, I guess, more nationally and internationally, which has been nice. I think it, you know, we still continue to do field work. This is spring and there's a lot of, <laughs> typically this would be a very busy season for us. It still is. We've had to cancel a lot of our field work because we didn't feel like it was worth the risk. But there is still some field work that we're moving ahead with and considering how to protect our employees while choosing to do the, the work that we do. I think all of those things have, have really impacted our work. And I guess in terms of what I would like to move forward with into the future is taking it more advantage of these digital platforms, but at the same time trying to figure out how to be, again, how to think about representation and equity and what we can do to meet people where they are if they don't have an internet connection or if they don't have the electronics that are needed to view these things. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing, Jamie, about not only your experience of having the illness and your experience being in the urgent care facility and isolating from your family, but also just how you're considering the ways that this is going to impact or change the way you see your 
work, right? And I think we're all kind of thinking through that question in a lot of ways in all our areas of work. How does this shift the way that we do what we used to do? It's definitely changing us in all sorts of ways. And I appreciate that you've brought up equity and just the importance of equity in not only the things that we have or don't have, but just even that we're all made in the image of God. And as we all know, there have been increased incidents of racism against Asians and Asian Americans this winter and spring. What has your experience been as a Chinese American woman during this time or what have you seen in your community? Thankfully, I have not experienced any direct incidents, although I do recognize that there have been really troubling incidents and my heart aches for that. I think my specific experience has been through our community. You know, we do live in Flushing. And so even early on before the stay-at-home orders had come through, there was a real lack of business and discrimination that we felt on behalf of our Flushing business owners. Mm-hmm. And, and I think for all of the Asian communities in New York City. And so, you know, we as a family, you know, tried to be really mindful about patronizing those establishments, you know, I remember going to have dim sum at our local or going to have breakfast at our local Chinese restaurant. And, you know, at the time when the the restaurant would be full and packed and and lines out the door and it was probably about 10 to 20% full. And and this is a place we go to fairly often. So we know the wait staff there. We know the employees. And I think, you know, we tried to give them an extra tip. And just in general, I think they were really grateful for our business. And so, you know, just recognizing that these are people's lives livelihoods. I think it's a different context now that everyone has to stay at home, but certainly our Asian establishments have been impacted really severely through this crisis and trying to figure out how to support them. I think especially for me, my mother-in-law's family is in Wuhan. And so early on, they were very, very, you know, in our eyes to my husband and I, they were very, we felt like they were overreacting at that point. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I think, at the, you know, because they were very anxious. I mean, I think even in February or so, they would be very, they didn't want to go out to her and say, They'd be wearing masks. And, you know, of course, they're older, so it makes sense for them to be protected. And I think also that connection with having had family in Wuhan and, you know, thankfully they are all safe and healthy, but being in a place where there is that level of lockdown and isolation and recognizing that, (laughs) I think ultimately recognizing that we live in a connected and global society. I think in terms of incidents of racism, I have seen, you know, I'm thankful for our city agencies that have been holding town halls for people to be aware of services to report these incidents of bias and hate crimes. You know, they've been trying to hold them in in multiple languages so that people have access. You know, I know that's only one step of the process of fighting racism, but I do think that it's important. And me having experienced incidents not related to COVID, I do think it's important to to name those mm-hmm. incidents, to name those experiences, to report them, to make them known. It's been a struggle for me. I think oftentimes it's easier to just say, you know, that person was ignorant and uninformed and to try to brush it off. But I think it's, I've, I've really been trying to be more 
mindful about putting words to that experience, putting words to my emotions and feelings and sharing that with others and communicating that, just voicing my experience so that other people are aware and they are able to take what they will from that. Thank you, Jamie, for sharing about your perspective in that area. I'm curious, too, if you could share briefly if you have any sense of what life is like now in Wuhan. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't fully have a sense. I mean, I think now there's certainly more movement. China as a country has recovered on some level. And so I think there's still a sense of having gone through a really difficult time and and knowing that it might be There's still potential for that, but trying to go back to business on a more, yeah, just go back to business on a a certain level. But I mean, to be honest, I don't know the details of what they're doing there. Sure. And I think selfishly, I ask that just because I think a lot of us are looking for hope and hoping to hear, oh, it's better there now. And therefore, that means it'll be better here soon, right? But kind of related, you know, you shared so many experiences over the past couple of months of heartbreak and tragedy and loneliness. And at the same time, you seem to have a lot of joy. And so I'm curious about, as we're all sort of looking for hope these days, where are you finding hope? Yeah, it's hard. I think you have to look for it. (laughs) You really Mm -hmm. have to search for it. Hope is not going to be in front of your face in a time like this. And I think I find hope in the fact that the flowers are blooming regardless, despite everything else. <laughs> I think I find hope in in the drawings that my kids sketch for me when I was sick. I find hope in my community and how they supported us during this time. I find hope in, in the fact that our church has really turned to prayer and seeking God in this time of just hopelessness around us. I think ultimately it's all of those things that I described, they they come from God. They come from this ultimate hope that we have, right? Of restoration and redemption of Mm -hmm. all things being made new. And, you know, we're not, we're not there yet. Frankly, we have to be really, we just have to be real about that fact. We're absolutely not there yet. But I do try to remind myself and I do try to look ahead to this ultimate restoration where every every tear will be wiped away, you know, that mm-hmm. that sense of that image of of comfort and peace and, and growth still continues to be really moving to me. Jamie, we like to conclude the podcast with the same question to all our guests. Is there a particular quote, a scripture, song, or other set of words that have been meaningful to you lately? And can you share about why it resonates with you at this time? Yeah, absolutely. I I wanted to share two quotes, one from scripture and one from a favorite childhood series of mine. I actually reread it when I was sick. I reread Anne of Green Gables and I highly recommend it. It's just so, you know, Anne is so spirited and positive. (laughs) It's a really good foil for all of this time. But I'll start with scripture. One verse that I've been reflecting on and actually our whole church has been reflecting on is Psalm 13. And it's fairly short. It's only six verses, but I won't read all of it. One thing I love about it is that it starts out with this lament. Mm -hmm. It starts out with just pouring out 
where this person's heart is right now in the in the midst of a deeply trying time and then ultimately it points back to god so i'll start and read the first couple of sentences and probably the last few as well so psalm 13 verse 1 starts off how long O lord will you forget me forever how long will you hide your face from me how long must i take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day how long shall my enemy be exalted over me. You know, I'm just going to read the whole thing because it's so good. (laughs) So verse three, consider and answer me, O Lord, my God, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. And then verse five, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart will rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And then I'll move on to Anne Shirley by L.M. Montgomery in the first book, Anne of Green Gables. This is right after her adoptive parents pick her up, even though they weren't expecting her. (laughs) And this is on the eve of her being sent back to the orphanage. And if you don't know the story, it kind of unfolds from there. But on that first night, her adoptive mother asks her to wants her to pray. And, you know, Anne's never prayed before. So one of the things that she says is, if I really wanted to pray, I'll tell you what I'd do. I'd go out into a great big field all alone or into the deep, deep woods. And I'd look up into the sky, up, up, up into that lovely blue sky that looks as if there was no end to his blueness. And then I just feel the prayer. And I just love that. I think a lot of times we can't We don't have the words. We don't even have the time or the presence of mind to sit down and articulate a prayer, but God still hears our feeling prayers. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing. And I'm glad that you read all of Psalm 13 as well. (laughs) It's wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Jamie, for this great conversation. I appreciate you sharing your story and sharing your experience these days about your work and faith. We're so grateful. And thanks too to Jasmine for co-hosting this time around. And I hope everyone enjoys this conversation. Thank you. It's been such a joy. Thank you for joining us for this episode of All Shall Be Well, Conversations with Women in the Academy and Beyond. This is Caroline Trisick, and information about our guests can be found on our podcast page at thewell.intervarsity.org slash podcasts. This has been a production of Women in the Academy and Professions, a focused ministry initiative of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA. We value the contribution of podcast guests who are not employed by InterVarsity, and we acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may or may not represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. Thank you for joining our conversation as we engage in faith and life together. We'd love to hear your feedback. To share your thoughts or to learn more about who we are or the resources and connections we provide, we invite you to visit us at our online gathering place, The Well. You can find us at thewell.intervarsity.org.